Labs Over Fabs, why the U.S. and Europe should invest in the future of semiconductors. To discuss, we have on one of the two co-authors of my report entitled Labs Over Fab, Chris Miller, professor at Tufts University, and Jan Piener Kleinens, who is the Project Director, Technology and Geopolitics at SNV, which is a <laughs> Berlin-based think tank for tech policy. Awesome. So, Chris, when I read Labs Over Fabs, my first thought was, why did you have the impulse after Chips for or during the time of Chips for America Act and so much policy attention, the semiconductor space finally, and the need for industrial policy in the US. Why did you have the urge to say, wait a minute, why don't we focus on this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I think we thought hard about the title of the report and we titled it not labs, not fabs, but rather labs over fabs. Because we're not trying to say that fabs aren't important. Obviously, they are. There's a really strong argument trying to incentivize and encourage fab production. Uh, we've already seen after TSMC's announcement that it's going to build in Arizona, a number of its suppliers also announcing they're going to build nearby. But it's a question of, of marginal do dollars. If you've got a $1 billion or $50 billion to spend, where is that going to go the furthest? And that's where when you start thinking about what is a, a billion dollars worth of subsidies for fabs get you versus What does a billion dollars of subsidies versus something else get you? It seemed to us there was a lot of scope for asking that question and, and, and trying to think through what the answer was. Yeah. So just to set the scene, basically the CHIPS Act, which is now in the broader competition package, we're recording this on May 26th. Most of the money seems to be going towards uh, subsidies for fab construction in the U.S. The impetus being, I guess, U.S.-China competition, folks being scared of the chip shortage, and large fabs being excited about the billions and billions of dollars potentially coming their way. So all this kind of combined to have most of the money, though not all of the money in the current legislation, going towards towards subsidies for fab construction, as opposed to the other the other ideas that we'll, both of us will be talking about over the next 45 minutes or so. Maybe as a follow-up to this regarding what your urge was, why do you think there is so much focus on the fab, on the fabrication side? Um, because if we, if we look at the value chain, the US is completely dominating the chip design area. The chip design is the, the part with the highest value add. Um, across the entire um, value chain. It's actually the, the production step where you define technology, right? TSMC in Taiwan is producing chips for Apple that Apple designed. So Apple defined the technology and shaped it. So in my opinion, this is the, the much more interesting process step and the much more aspiring production step to, to have in your own industry. So why do you think, at least from the U.S. policy perspective, why are the policymakers so focused on subsidizing, like Jordan, you mentioned before, and, and building FAPs instead of, of um, subsidizing and investing in a, a stronger chip design ecosystem? Well, I think there are a couple of potential answers to this, probably a bit of truth in all of them. There's a cynical political explanation, which is that There's a couple of pretty influential senators and representatives, including the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who have got a pretty big facilities in their states or districts. And, and I think pretty understandably imagine that political calculations are shaping their views. That's, that's, that's part of the story. It's not the whole story. I think another big part of the story is if you look across the supply chain, it's, you're right to say that on the design side, America has a really substantial role in the equipment space. There's a, a substantial role played by American firms. But in fabrication, the U.S. is and the rest of the world is very reliant. One company on one small island off of China's coast. And so there's the risk of earthquakes. There's the risk of droughts. 
there's the risk of geopolitics all getting in the way. And I think that's been a big factor in, in, in the push towards more support for fabrication onshore, or at least in, in different places other than uh, Taiwan. And the question, of course, is, well, if we were to spend $50 billion on that, how much additional fabrication would it actually get us? And I think what's really interesting is if you look at the semiconductor industry, the SAA's report with BCG on this on this topic, they actually say you don't get that much more fabrication of $50 billion of incentives. You yeah. change the balance a couple of percent. Let's throw this one back at you, JP. Why are the Europeans so focused <laughs> on building fab uh, when, when you know, their leading are even further behind where Intel is? relative to the the Samsungs and TFC, TSMCs of the world. Yeah, absolutely. To put it into perspective, the most advanced fab in Europe is actually Intel's in, in Ireland. And then the, the next available foundry, so co- contract chip making, is Global Foundries, another U.S. company, U.S. origin, not necessarily U.S. owned uh, company, in Dresden with uh, 22 nanometers. So Europe is quite a bit behind without sounding too snarky but i think uh, it's a question of pride i think that a little bit of european arrogance to say we didn't invest anything for the past 20 years but it shouldn't be too hard to to catch up to two nanometers if we just scrape together uh, 20 billion euros and build this damn uh, fab this is partly why i like the the labs over fabs report so much because i think you make a viable point that instead of focusing on this this money grave which is cutting-edge wafer fabrication, you could do so many things with the amount of subsidies that we are talking about. Pat Gelsinger, the the CEO of, of Intel, met with uh, Thierry Breton, our commissioner for the for the single market in, in Europe. And apparently he told them the price tag, look, Intel is happy to build it if there are 8 billion euros of subsidy. And you can do a lot <laughs> with 8 billion euros to, <laughs> to strengthen your chip design ecosystem, which is absolutely non-existent in, in Europe. And, and chip design, I think, is over half of the the value chain. The money that yes. companies earn from making chips is mostly in the design yeah. process. So, JP, let's do a little bit of background. What is chip design and why is Europe only, when why does Europe only comprise 2% of the accumulated R&D costs of the of, of fabulous firms over the past. There we have to uh, to differentiate between the, the business model and the and then the process step. So of course we have companies such as Infineon or NXP or ST Microelectronics in Europe who do a lot of chip design, right? But as an IDM, as an integrated device manufacturer, these companies they design their own chips and for the most part they also manufacture their own chips. But they are focused on chips that don't necessarily benefit from the most advanced, the most cutting edge manufacturing. If you talk about the charging circuit in your iPhone to charge your battery, or if you talk about the electric vehicle that that needs a whole lot of semiconductors, then typically in these areas, you don't need the 5 nanometer, the 7 nanometer, the 2 nanometer wafer fabrication. But you're totally fine to run it on 20 nanometers, on 40 nanometers, on 90 nanometers, on on different materials even. And that's what the European players focus on. They focus on the niche that they are really strong at, automotive semiconductors, power semiconductors, sensors, all these kind of things. In this area, you really don't need, you really don't rely on cutting edge wafer fabrication. And that's why even though European industry is still strong in certain niche markets, we don't really have 
a competitor to NVIDIA or a competitor to AMD or a competitor to Qualcomm in Europe. Because over time, European semiconductor companies slowly moved out of the consumer business. And the consumer business is really where you have the economies of scale, the volume that you need in order to design and then to manufacture the most advanced chips. Apple, in the fourth quarter of 2020, Apple sold iPhones worth 65 billion US dollars. If I sell 65 billion US dollars worth of iPhones in a single quarter, I can totally invest a couple of billion in designing my own chip and uh, manufacturing it. No problem at all. But there are just very few markets that have similar economies of scale and volumes. And if you're not active in these markets, basically cutting edge chip design and manufacturing is out of your league. It's, it's it really out of your buy. reach. And even though you're supplying to Bosch and making somewhat cool automotive chips, this is not where the real cutting edge is. And it leads you down a, a path of consolidation and a lower equilibrium than you might have had had you, you know, been pushing to do the consumer stuff throughout the, the, the 2000s. Exactly. I, I think consumer, consumer stuff is really the key word here because... Outside of consumer electronics, you simply don't have the necessary volumes to justify the huge investments in chip design, in manufacturing that, that are necessary to produce something at seven or five nanometers. That, that's in itself why I think the majority of what you wrote in Lab Over Fabs would actually be completely applicable to Europe as well. Because Europe, while I can see the argument in the US where you can say, look, we already have chip design. We have highly competitive market-leading chip design companies in the US. We just lack the manufacturing. So why don't we invest in manufacturing? Fair enough. But Europe doesn't even have the chip design part. It's building windmills without cornfields. It really doesn't make sense. <laughs> That was, that was a nice analogy. What do windmills do? What do windmills do for cornfields? You mill the corn? For flour, exactly. Uh. <laughs> it's antique technology but it's still relevant see, this is, see in america you know with our with our with our fancy uh you know design firms i'm, I'm a few uh, you know industrial revolutions past those sorts that's of okay we, we can bring it down to european levels <laughs> but but jp i guess the other question for for europe that's interesting is one of the ways that europe specialized is in lithography with ASML, but it's not only ASML, it's a lot of ASML's key suppliers are also based in Europe, a number of crucial German firms, for example, yeah. that are, are fundamentally important. So I, I wonder if there's a, a way that Europe ought to be thinking as well is how do you bolster and, and solidify this position, not only ASML's position, but the broader uh, role of Europe in the equipment industry? You would think that this is a natural question for <laughs> Euro European policymakers, but actually very little attention on the fact that we should sustain our strength in manufacturing and packaging equipment, right? Uh, like you said, we, it's not just, of course, ASML is the obvious elephant in the room and the most most dominant company, but we, we have Eikstron, we, AS, we have ASM International, we have Sysmicro, like the, there are several European equipment companies. And speaking as a German here, it also comes, it fits better to Europe's industrial base where mechanical engineering and kind of 
process knowledge is simply deeply embedded in our university. It, it makes sense that European, let's say a European supplier network, I think 60% of the 5,000 suppliers of ISML are European companies. So it makes sense that a highly sophisticated mechanical equipment where it's about uh, precision in manufacturing steel and lenses and, and lasers and whatever, that this comes out of Europe because historically speaking, this has been a strength of, of European manufacturing. And in, in the same sense, it's also not surprising to me that a lot of equipment companies sit in Japan because also historically speaking, Japan has a lot of mechanical engineers and a very strong industrial base in that, in that area. So why not play to your strength? My, my favorite story here is the example of uh, Zeiss, which makes the, the lenses for ASML's lithography, which was founded almost 200 years ago now and had this incredible history of being split into, well, first off, like basically destroyed during the, the Soviet occupation of Germany, then split in two between an East German and West German uh, version during the Cold War with the, both sides in constant litigation as to who was the proper Zeiss. And nevertheless, it survived all this to still remain the best in the world. It's an incredible uh, case study in, in path dependency in manufacturing. Absolutely. And I think you, you, path dependency is something that is often downplayed, I think, in Euro, at least in European policymaking. I'm wondering how it is in the US, because the, at least with semiconductor industrial policy, the idea is really that you can basically skip several nodes and jump ahead immediately to two nanometers and just give us five years time. And at the end of this, at least following uh, Europe's 10-year strategy from the European Commission, that by that time, we will also have a cutting edge a wave of fabrication in Europe. And it, it completely um, ignores the fact of path dependencies. TSMC and Samsung are simply in the best position right now because of path dependencies to develop the next cutting edge. And in fact, TSMC just announced that they might have had a, a breakthrough um, research success for uh, the one nanometer node. And I think that this is simply... Um, yeah, which they got to say two weeks after IBM was bragging about their two <laughs> nanometer just to rub it in their faces. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but you get my point. Um, I think especially for policy making, you should never underestimate path dependencies. One, one of the, the factors that I think causes this path dependency is workforce issues because you've got workers that are trained over time and then train the next generation uh, and it, it's, it seems like that's something that Taiwan has managed to do extraordinarily well, build a cadre of people and have universities directly plugged into the education system that's leading people to TSMC and the other producers there. And I know, Jordan, you've done a, a bit of look at into this in, in the U.S. case, but uh, maybe you'd be interested to hear both in, in U.S. and in Europe, what are the challenges that the semiconductor workforce faces? Fundamentally, I think the issue over the past 25, 30 years has been that if you're engineering minded, you can have a much stable and likely more lucrative career doing software engineering as opposed to hardware engineering. Coming out of college, the Googles and Facebooks of the world will literally pay you twice as much as what you could get if you were working at an Intel or a Global Foundries. And this was not necessarily the case in the heyday of Silicon Valley, but coming back to like national strengths on the one hand, like it's not bad for people to sort themselves into the places in their, co their economy where they 
can create the most GDP or what have you. But the issues are when you hollow, hollow a workforce out enough that you leave, A, leave like national gains on the table and also open up vulnerabilities of the sort that we saw really manifest over the course of 2020, where the kind of lack of manufacturing uh, capacity and know-how was really made apparent in America's struggles to deal with PPE and, and what have you, though. Of course, with vaccine manufacturing, that's a whole nother story because that that career path has been something which has like remained lucrative and there have been like very healthy world-beating countries companies over the past few decades that, that have thrived and not lost their workforces out to to Twitter and Facebook. So in our piece, we talked about scholarships, which excitingly is something which has made it into a, a endless frontier. There's billions of dollars actually to, to, to subsidize STEM and I think in particular sort of electrical and mechanical engineering. I want to come back to how to make money go further as opposed to just subsidizing fabs. Chris, can you tell the story of the origins of EDA tools and what lessons uh, we can learn from, from that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a fun piece of history. And you know, EDA today is a, a relatively small slice of the semiconductor supply chain in terms of the, the number of dollars that go to EDA companies, but it's, it's impossible to make semiconductors without them. And in the earliest days of the industry, the, most chip firms had uh, very basic EDA tools that they used in-house. So there weren't firms that did it on their own. It was Every company, or at least the big companies, had their own internal models. But over the, the final years of the 1970s and into the early 1990s, DARPA uh, and the National Science Foundation in the U.S. began to give out really pretty small grants in the hundreds of thousands or a couple million dollar ranges, nothing big in comparison to the, the types of money the U.S. government normally spends to a couple of universities, Carnegie Mellon and Berkeley, chief among them, to create centers of excellence in, in computer-aided design, as it was then called, CAD. And out of these pretty small investments were born a series of different EDA companies, which eventually consolidated into the, the three biggest ones, Cadence, Synopsis, and Mentor, that we have today. As return on investment goes in terms of uh, government spending, it's got to be uh, the best bet that the U.S. government has uh, ever made, both because these are, are, are three important companies economically, but also because if you want to control the global semiconductor supply chain for your foreign policy purposes, these are three pretty excellent kill switches that the U.S. Has, has used against a number of Chinese companies. And so when I think about what's the best way for the government to spend money, I look at this as a case study of government spending gone very right, that you were able to take a small amount of money, run it through just two universities, basically a couple of faculty members. The, the number of people that were involved in this origin story is counted really in the dozens. And yet they've managed to create these world-beating companies that are, are almost impossible to, to replicate. And so I think the question we have to be asking is, how do we do that? What's the right way to to replicate that. That story and, and case study, because recently I, I stumbled over DARPA's toolbox initiative. Maybe you've, you've uh, seen or, or heard of it. And basically what DARPA says is for their own researchers and contractors, it's so frustrating to negotiate license agreements with semiconductor IP vendors uh, and also with EDA tool, tool vendors. And it's such a high price point and it is so much overhead that eats away time from the researcher actually doing what they do best doing research that the toolbox initiative from DARPA wants is basically a collaboration with semiconductor IP vendors where DARPA already negotiated all the important stuff um, out of the way and it simply streamlines the process for the researcher to access all that semiconductor IP and for me this is a, a straightforward pragmatic approach 
to lower the barrier for everybody. They, they, of course, they talk about de democratizing <laughs> chip design, but streamlining the process and thus making it more accessible for everybody to simply innovate on, on chips. Yeah, and the big question, I guess, certainly being asked in the U.S., but probably more broadly is we've got these case studies of success like DARPA. What type of institutions is it that can, can replicate that success? I think part of the explanation in the U.S. is that because DARPA is in the Defense Department and the Defense Department gets its appropriations approved much more easily through Congress than any other part of the government, no one asks very many questions. And so as long as they hire good people, it's easier for them to take big risks and, and not suffer if some of the risks don't pay off. But it can't be the whole part of the story. Jordan, I, I know you've been tweeting laments about changes in the, the legislation uh, coming through Congress about ways that they've stripped out technology funding. What, what do you think? So... I've talked about this a little bit on other shows, so I don't want to go too far in depth. But what I will say is that even though the kind of civilian spending has been cut dramatically from what the initial tech directorate was proposing, there is money authorized for a microelectronics lab. Um, and it still remains to be seen if that money is going to be realized and if it's going to be run in a smart way, which kind of builds on the success of the DARPA sandbox and turns it into something which is really scalable and actually allows allows more startups and and more and more like hungry grad students with curious with with clever ideas to to work on world class equipment, see silicon, and and actually figure out how far their sort of lab breakthroughs are from turning things into actual products. So I am actually cautiously optimistic. At least on the chip side, that there are some interesting novel things in the new Competition Act, which is currently winding its way through the Senate, that are reminiscent, if not word for word, out of our labs over Fab's piece. Well, yeah, the idea of this quote-unquote democratization of the ability to do research that JP mentioned, I think, is really important. And, and there's a number of examples of this in 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 the history of the industry. I, I think back to the. I think it was the early 1980s when DARPA funded the first FAB service called it was called Mosis, and it be, this is before FABs really this is before before foundries really existed, and, and so you had to know someone at Intel or know someone at National Semiconductor to if you were a university research to actually get chips made, and so DARPA funded this thing called Mosis, which would let you use the ARPANET, the early internet, to send in your design, and they would find spare capacity at different fabs <laughs> in Silicon Valley, and, and, and had a couple batches of wafers you wanted to produce, they would find you a slot. And I think this is actually pretty important, because it made it possible for people at universities to design and then have produced uh, their own chips in a way that would have never exactly. been possible to do if, if there, there wasn't a service like this. What is IMEC and why does it matter? <laughs> uh, IMEC is uh, one of the most important research and technology organizations in, in Europe for the semiconductor space. So what IMEC is doing is basically they're doing contract research uh, together with their clients and their clients are companies such as TSMC or Samsung or Intel or ASML. And they are really at the forefront of the process technology to advance the cutting edge. So if TSMC wants to develop the, the one nanometer node or the, the, the two nanometer node or whatever, typically what's happening is they do that in collaboration with. And interestingly, as often with European research, EMEC started out as partly publicly funded research organization. Of course, now, at least my understanding is that the majority of their research is commissioned by, by private companies and it's, uh, it's contract based. But there again, you have this element, what you mentioned before, Chris, public um, investments in R&D were a catalyst uh, for 
broader innovation across the entire value chain. There are other relevant RTOs specifically for semiconductors in, in Europe, such as CLET in, in France and Fraunhofer in Germany. And interestingly, if we look at the kind of average R&D power, so to speak, of the different regions, Europe is really boxing above its price tag. So even though we have a minuscule share of the entire value chain in terms of sales, we are around 8 or 9% of global IC sales, European companies, the European research contribution is actually significantly higher, around 20%. And this is partly because of the importance of the European research and technology um, organizations to collaborate with U.S. companies, with Taiwanese companies, with Chinese companies to advance semiconductor research. So for me, this again speaks to the really division of labor across the entire value chain. And it's what you mentioned before, Chris, with EDA and export restrictions, that it's really indispensable to develop modern chips. You can make that case for many other parts of the value chain, where if you take out this one piece, be that the ASML EOV lithography machine or the the Japanese photoresist or the Taiwanese FAP, everything breaks down. So how can we make this value chain more resilient and keep it global? That's the big question, especially since I think everyone wants their their piece to be more resilient, but not necessarily everyone else's pieces to be more resilient. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it's just adding up what every every country is like, yeah, we're going to get 20% market share by 2030. It's no, those like, there's only one pie of 100. Exactly. (laughs) Someone's going to lose. I love that line, JP, in your report where you were like, in 2018, the European Commission again planned to strengthen the EU's chip design ecosystem through a European design alliance and strategic design initiatives. Instead, the EU's fabulous factory shrunk by 50% over the last 10 years. (laughs) Um, So, you know, easier said than done. It's one thing to say, we're going to spend all this money and we're going to win back the future. This is something that China is running into as well, right? Like with the Made in China 2025 saying we're going to do 70% of all of our chip consumption by 2025 produced domestically. Like they're going to miss that by, I think it's going to be something like 25%. I see Insights projection. Very much easier said than done riding against the trying to bend the path dependencies and sort of market realities. Though I think it's not completely unrealistic that over a longer time horizon, investing in education as well as the sort of resources for those people who are getting the the PhDs to have the the venture ecosystems and the tools to be able to start and compete and, and, and grow in a smart way. It's not impossible, but this is just really difficult stuff to bend. To. It's one thing for the U.S. to cut firms off from from technologies, right? That's the easy part. The hard part is like making sure that the companies, the new companies that start in your country get new customers and are able to compete with the with the established players. What do you guys think of the recent announcement uh, talking about more collaboration across the value chain that South Korea and um, the U.S. government, to my understanding, have this memorandum of understanding where they want to strategically invest in the semiconductor ecosystem? What are your thoughts on this? Have you heard anything more about it? Because it sounded really interesting in terms of a more collaborative approach instead of reshoring and and strategic autonomy and all of that. We have, so in this announcement, the sort of, the readout was that the U.S. and the Republic of Korea will facilitate mutual and complementary investments in semiconductors, including for advanced and auto-grade, encourage joint R&D. The line that I thought was uh, most revealing was explore the creation of a U.S.-Korea supply chain task force between the White House and the uh, Korean office of the president. I think this just goes to show that 
that this is really tricky pushing firms to do things that they wouldn't be doing otherwise. These sorts of business relationships and entrusting your company or your R&D into not only another firm, but another firm halfway across the world needs to have, I think, both business logic as well as personal relationships to be able to do these sorts of things. Given that lots of Koreans who are leading these companies have spent time in the US, have worked in American firms, have been to American research institutions or what have you. Those are the things that like take 20 years to build and it's very difficult for democratic countries to force their firms to say okay like you guys all partner with korea don't partner with china anymore and you can do that but like this is you want to have it be natural and be an outgrowth of, of business logic as opposed to something where these firms say, oh, I guess the president is saying we should do this. So maybe we'll take an extra meeting or whatever. <laughs> and that sort of thing, it's not unhelpful. And clearly all of these, all of these business leaders are getting the message. America is not China in that if a company doesn't do what the president wants, Biden can throw the CEO in jail. Or when you hear stories of Chinese firms not really wanting to do an investment in Belt and Road, and then they get the call from their state bank, which is their only source of lending, and they say, no, you're doing this project in northern Pakistan. And they say, okay, I guess we're doing this project in northern Pakistan. That level of leverage is not something that the U.S. has. What the U.S. can do is they can, is we can, the, the U.S. government can do things like change procurement rules for the federal government to say, we will welcome joint Korea-U.S. collaborations and what have you. And, and maybe like NSF funding can be more oriented toward U.S.-Korean collaboration, that sort of thing. But this is, this is a big boat and the tools which are available to the, to the U.S. government are slightly different when you want to realize these tech partnerships and do this sort of like, international technology outreach then then what you would then what would you do if you were say sitting in beijing and and again this is not to say that this stuff isn't important but it it is an extra degree of difficulty in making these kind of partnerships which we also saw announced in the u.s japan context makes sense the one thing which i will say complicates all of this is congress's push to buy american and i read through the 100 page summary of the uh, competition act last night I'll, I'll get through the thousand page uh full text version at some point i promise i guess that's my memorial day weekend reading oh my Jesus. god um but but anyways on the one hand there are all these statements where it's like it is the sense of congress that it's really great and like the korea is really cool and japan's really cool and we should collaborate with them on technology but there's also 200 pages about buy american this and buy american that and talking about putting the, your money where your mouth is if you're not going to buy stuff from south korea and japan even though these are the countries that you're most comfortable with and most excited to collaborate with on a technological basis then it's going to be really hard right to to push firms which are maybe a little wary to take the next step one last thing on this is one of the challenges i was talking to someone who works on u.s japan tech collaboration is that the Japanese academic system is not synced up with the West's. So it's very difficult to do a sort of year-long fellowship or study abroad because they graduate in April and like the basically you have to take like an extra six months off if you want to be in an academic calendar in Japan and then go to the U.S. for a little while. So there are aside from these like big top-down like okay let's make sure we allocate this money to that thing. There are also smaller people-to-people -people things because again these collaborations happen because folks 
hang out in uh, grad school and play basketball and cook meals and watch a Super Bowl <laughs> together or, you know, sumo wrestling in or what have you. Um, those sorts of things are also what you need, not just heads of state saying, hey, this is a good idea. Like, you guys play nicer together. Well, I think we all agree that sumo wrestling is, is definitely crucial to the future of the, the semiconductor supply chain. But I, I, I agree with what you said, Jordan, but I think there's a distinction to be made between sort of U.S. Japan and U.S. Korea. And I think it has to do with the specific firms at play. So if you, you, know, you think of what kind of chips is South Korea producing at scale, we're talking about DRAM and NAND chips where there's direct competition with the U.S. firm Micron. And then South Korea's foundry activities, are Samsung's foundry activities are smaller. And a lot of it happens in, in Texas. So there, there is a bit of a zero-sum nature of U.S.-South Korea semiconductor investment, at least as it relates to the memory space. And there's a, you know, a lot of state subsidization coming mm-hmm. from both sides in a way that U.S.-Japan, I think, is different. There was a lot of accusations in the 1980s, but now, actually, the, the two countries are really complementary uh, rather than competitive in, in what they produce, with a couple of exceptions. But it, it seems like there's actually a lot more space now for the U.S.-Japan, and I think Europe as well with the U.S. Again, there's... There's not a whole lot of head-on competition. There's a lot more complementarity than with Korea. So in some ways, Korea seems like the toughest nut to crack if you were trying to to get a, a joint R&D partnership up with an ally or, or something along those lines. If there's, if you imagine there's a bilateral task force on, on semiconductor supply chain between South Korea uh, and the U.S., at the end of the day, to make this task force work, you have to have an understanding of the actual supply chain. So companies need to let their pants down and say, look, this is what we are highly dependent on. A little bit what happened with the BIS call now for the vulnerabilities in the manufacturing and and packaging supply chain. But of course, this was all on the record. So in between the lines, you read a little bit of information where the dependencies lies. But in such a task force, I cannot imagine that a US and South Korean competitor tell each other, oh, these are actually our vulnerabilities and we have no no idea how to fix it in the long term. And if every, anybody would pull the plug, we would be screwed. I, I don't see that happening in, in any bilateral task force, to be honest. JP, I'm really glad you read that stuff because honestly, I thought I was the only one. Those BIS submissions. Um, they are, really they are super interesting. Every, I mean, yeah. Super, super interesting. I'll put a link in the show notes. But yeah, no, basically it was these firms telling the commerce department hey look tungsten it's a fucking problem (laughs) we got to get our hands on some tungsten chris helium huge russian players like 60 percent of the world's (laughs) helium comes from russia and they don't know how that happened but there's also i never knew that there's a helium reserve in the u.s and there's some something interesting going on that the but JP, they're canceling it because they were trying to save money. They sold it like exactly the wrong time. <laughs> and it was like the biggest, like the, these reserves are very tricky, but like Congress basically did exact, did the opposite of what they should have Beautiful. done. And now they're going to have to like turn it back on, which is going to be twice as expensive as had they never turned it off in the first place. So. Just last shout out to the, I never thought I would say this, but last shout out to the BIS uh, uh, call for request. Um, there's a small U.S. company that handed in like a three or five pager and you can see there are spelling errors. And at the end of, of the thing, they even say, sorry, we have done this quite quickly. If you want to uh, know more, please hit us up. But it's a PCB manufacturer and they make the wonderful point where they say, look, you're worried about your manufacturing base. You're also worried about your advanced packaging base. What at the end of the day, all this stuff comes together at a PCB 
And we don't have any capacity for that within the United States. This is all outsourced. JP, to... what is PCB? Uh, it's a, a printed circuit board. So the, basically, if, if you think of your main board in your computer, the, the blue or green base where all the components sit on, that's the PCB. So it's really the, the last step where Foxconn workers like solder everything on top. Um, but it's also super easy to exploit the PCB to compromise a de device. So there's a huge national security dimension. It's completely outsourced because it's way too labor intensive. It's considered low tech by chip design standards because it's just a PCB. But this small company makes a wonderful argument that says, basically, it's nice that you think about all the previous production steps. But if it's about national security and resilience, you should forget about this last part, even though it's, it's not sexy. I thought the Foxconn submission was pretty underwhelming too. It's you guys basically have promised this plant, which now no longer exists. And now you're <laughs> telling America what to do and you got spelling mistakes. Like oh, it's awkward just, for everybody. You're involved. like a multi-billion dollar company. I'm sorry. No excuses. <laughs> Chris Miller, JP. Thanks so much for coming on China talk. Thanks so much. Jordan. Yeah, 
坐下来聊下天嘛，啊，俺他们的 city 不太习惯嘛，啊，许多的愿望全都实现了，啊，你觉得你自己有没有变了，啊，受不了别人在说你的坏话，啊，你觉得你付出了足够的代价，啊，普通的女人的香水，马不停蹄在你的周围，回到了家里面一个人的时候，是否会害怕？你是否怀念你小时候，伴随日落约好朋友们在楼顶吹风，追女孩比做数学题还困难，像笨蛋，从不为未来担心，因为你。到你根本没有任何胜算啊！我在那个时候选中了你，闯入你的生活，带你去了新世界里。那是我第一次介绍我的名字给你 ，H I P H O P 啊、uh、！Hip Hop Save My Life。
给我闭嘴，我知道应该怎么做的。我过的生活是我做梦都想过的。还记得我出了地铁站就是个跑车店，我站在门口幻想有一天能开到回皮线。我曾经不吃午饭，为了一本漫画书，我想要实现愿望，找到我的七龙珠。在学校里面是个异类，没地位，在篮球校队是个替补，没有上场机会。直到了有一天你出现在我世界，我开始意识到和这些人的区别，我拒绝和他们过一样的生活。我说拒绝，我张开翅膀就没想过落地哪怕仅仅理解。你让我大胆崇拜，别害怕，不要退后。你永远在我背后，你会陪我走到最后。你是个秘密，赋予我生命特殊意义。H I P H O P O、uh。Hip Hop Save My Life。Uh。Hip Hop Save My Life。Uh。Shoot that。Uh。Hip Hop Save My Life。五万个观众等我们上场，来把手叠在一起，我们做到了。我背着一束保险进去买车，后视镜的自己像是菲比森一样的笑着。给我纸笔，我甚至都不需要纸，就能够写出了完美的歌词。承载的家人的希望，朋友的梦想，像是在天空中飞翔的鸽子，和当年的我一样的幼稚，一样的斗志，明明的斗志，绝不会大家去，因为我是一个斗士啊。Uh, 更多目光只会让我更强，我不想睡，傲慢会变得更忙。这是我曾无数次梦到的灯光，打在我的身上。啊、uh, ，我和他一起经历太多，他爱我，他是我身体里跳动的脉搏。这首是关于我跟他的友谊。H I P H O P on。Save my life.